if we are to understand why Sweden does it the way we do, it is because of things we had adopted or particular relationships between expertise and power that were laid down, even in law, much earlier. And again, I think whatever country you go to in the entire world, you find certain interesting differences. And they were not invented in January or February or March. This is the day. Let me assert my Hi, this is Eric Pagney here at the Rocket FM Studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 16 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Joined on the phone line by Mark Vandenbosch. Mark, on this episode, we'll be talking to Professor Sverker Sorlin, who's a professor of environmental history, also history of ideas, history of science at KTH Royal Institute of Technology, the Division of History of Science, Technology, and Environment. In this episode of the podcast, he's going to be talking about Swedish traditions when it comes to the relationship between experts and governance and how decisions are made in this country and how, or how the management of this crisis didn't come from nowhere. It actually is an expression of a long Swedish tradition of giving experts quite a bit of sway in many aspects of governance in this country. Obviously a heavy hitter in the world of academia here in Sweden. It'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. You know, Mark, our last episode of this podcast uh, with uh, Professor Tom Britton talking about uh, herd immunity, that uh, that issue is actually just in the last couple of days has become quite a topic of discussion in the Swedish media since I think a lot of people were expecting that our levels of uh, infection would be much higher than they actually are. 7.3% was the latest number from the Swedish uh, Public Health Agency when some experts were predicting that it would be 50% or more by now. So I think a lot of people are now saying, wow, so maybe herd immunity is not really uh, something that's going to be in the cards anytime soon. And even in one of uh, Anders Tegnell, the Swedish uh, state epidemiologist, his predecessor, Annika Linda, has started to uh, question her early support for the Swedish strategy. She now thinks that we should have locked down harder and that might have very likely saved a lot more lives of elderly people that have died in elderly care facilities in this country. You know, I'd like to speak a lot also about some of the situation in France since I was born there and I still have family and contacts there. And in France, which has instituted an extremely restrictive lockdown, uh, there is an abstract actually that came in a science publication that is getting a little bit of attention. And they talk about herd immunity there as well. And the infection rate, this is at the middle of May, so roughly the same time as the figures coming out of Sweden, was 4.5% which is not that drastically different from what we have in Sweden, despite the fact we've had no lockdown. And the results of this, the impact long range, of course, is in France, they're already gearing up for what they fear will be a very difficult second wave because of this low immunity ratio. So we'll see what this means for Sweden. Obviously, we hope for the best. Since we're on the subject of France, another aspect of the coronavirus, I think, is that it really shows the true nature of humankind, both the good and the bad. There are a couple of sides to a particular coin, which I will label greed, that are coming to the forefront. And in France, there's a controversy right now because certain parts of France are receiving remuneration for people working in the health community and in hospitals and so on. And they're supposed to get some type of danger pay, if you will, a bonus. But that is being allocated very, very differently throughout the country. And there is no correlation really to the amount of cases or the amount of work that has been conducted in fighting the disease. That is creating uh, some waves because, of course, people feel that this is quite unfair. The other side of this coin is what's happening in the United States. States, 
where in New York, in New York State, in New York City, the governor of New York State, uh, Cuomo, made an all-out bulletin to people in the health community to come and help them out in New York because there's such a surge of cases there. Please come, volunteer your time, help us out. And so a lot of people responded to that call from different states from across the country. And now <laughs> Cuomo <laughs> wants to tax them for their work in place because they did get paid, which, you know, you could argue, well, maybe they should get a freebie. I mean, they did this out of the goodness of their heart, basically. But in addition to taxing them for their work in New York, Cuomo wants to tax them for their income back in their home state as well. That's, that seems like <laughs> a real, that's a real stretch. So it seems like the state is trying, the state of New York is trying to claw back some of these huge expenses. That is kind of odd. I mean, obviously, I understand that the state of New York is under severe economic strain, but so is the rest of the country. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to pay for all this. And uh, that hasn't really been addressed. Of all people that should get paid, it is definitely these people that actually have put themselves in harm way and then work there on the front lines of battling this situation. The nurses, the doctors, the other professionals that have really um, put their neck out. I think they do deserve to be compensated and probably not taxed excessively, as uh, seems to be the case there. This is very poor optics for the state of New York at the moment. Uh, Also, uh, in the news, as I sort of transition into my usual 360, I thought we'd go back to Brazil, a country that we've talked about in previous podcasts on several occasions where we felt that some of the numbers there were overly optimistic. And obviously, the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, has been very nonchalant at, at his response to the corona crisis, labeling it, as others have, as a little cold. But now the numbers there are exploding. Number three in the world in total reported cases, which of course is based on tests, so the real numbers are far higher. But even more problematic is the fatality rate is just exploding upwards. The indigenous population from the Amazon basin, a lot of them have come into the city to find work, to get education, and are living in poverty in very densely populated urban areas. And the numbers of corona cases in, in that segment of the population is absolutely astronomical. Okay, that's another, sort of touches upon another theme that we talked about before, about uh, the global south and how it seemed like the continent of Africa was uh, much less hit by COVID-19 than other places uh, in the world. Uh, but it seems like Brazil is perhaps the first big global south nation that will suffer tremendously from the uh, coronavirus outbreak. Yeah, an interesting part of this as well is there's been some uh, rhetoric about heat and weather having correlation to how effective the spread of the disease is. And the hypothesis has been that in warm weather conditions, that the disease is restricted somehow. But obviously, Brazil blows that argument out the window. All right, Mark. So before turning over to uh, Sverker Sorlin, uh, I want to remind listeners to once again uh, spread the word, help us uh, get the word out about this podcast, Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic, available on just about every uh, major podcast platform. Give us a review, give us a rating, and uh, let uh, your friends and family and anybody else on your social media networks uh, know about this podcast that we've been doing now for several months, done 16 episodes, got a lot more planned in the uh, days and weeks ahead. And now let's turn over to uh, Professor Sverker Sorlin and talking about the historical roots here in Sweden of the response to the coronavirus crisis. In order to explain what's going on in this acute, very rapid crisis, we find that if we look for the reasons, we shouldn't just look at current strategies of governments and agencies of how to deal with the virus today. It's actually something that was whatever strategy you choose, you have this longer pattern. And it's basically two factors that I think are important here. One is the uh, growing inequalities in Swedish society over a long period of time, actually starting very distinctively during the 1980s and has since just grown and grown. And that means that these socioeconomic differences, they are bigger now. So if that is a source of vulnerability, 
that source has actually grown. And that is man-made, so to speak. It's, it's made by society, it's made by politics. It's from political decision-making. The other factor is different, but still related, and that's the choice of, it's public choice, you could say, that the public choice theory and public choice approach to policy issues, to policy de- decisions, has been very markedly, in the Swedish case, uh, despite many prejudices about Sweden, it's since about the 1990s, it has grown very much in a, in a more market-oriented direction. And Sweden as a society has a, uh, is a very, in a sense, efficient society. When we choose certain patterns of, of action, we, we tend to be pretty able to follow it. <laughs> so just as much as the sort of welfare state approach was marking several decades around the middle of the 20th century, in the past several decades, we have as zealously, in a sense, fulfilled this neoliberal approach, which means that we have the most liberalized school system in the world, along with Chile, I think, and the marketized school system. We have also pretty large um, marketizing, marketized share of the of the healthcare system and of the elderly care system and so on. And if you look for for reasons, if you go one level further down and look at what the sort of drivers might be, elderly care centers and, and other institutions are being so hit. It seems to be related. This needs to be further investigated. But as far as we know now, the marketization has led to much more spread of agency. There's no sort of single authority. And also there is lack of incentives, particularly among the private owners and producers of these services, to actually maintain a long-term perspective since they are profit-driven. Well, this is briefly put, but there is this effect too that major changes over society, over a sequence of maybe 30, 40, 50 years, have led to a situation where preparedness actually was lowering in the Swedish society. Uh, and I think it's necessary to take that into account, in a sense, to see that there is a, already a, a situation, you could say, when, when, when something bad hits you. <laughs> I mean, if when the shit is there, it depends on what sort of fan you have <laughs> and what, what's the speed of the, of the rotating blades. <laughs> they could be very different. And of course, there are much starker and graver situations that we have here. Still, we are very functioning as a society, many advantages in terms of level of education, infrastructures are pretty good and so on. The, the healthcare is generally a high standard. And, and also there are some alleviating factors, for example, in, in big cities here and around the country, particularly the big cities, we tend to have very many people who live in single households, which actually helps us away from spreading the disease and so on. So it's pros and cons and it's sort of pluses and minus. But on the balance, I think uh, if this is <laughs> would have hit Sweden in 1980, we'd probably be responding better than we do now. But uh, now we're about uh, two months or so into the crisis, Verker, and of course a lot of new insights have been gained. What have you learned about Sweden since? If we're talking now before the uh, the crisis struck Sweden before, let's say up until January, February, since that time, what have you learned about Sweden and the way Sweden functions as a democracy, as a crisis management unit, and as a society driven largely by expertise on the government level? Yeah, so that's a very interesting point, and it's been observed also by foreign observers that if you look at most countries, the politicians stand in the front line and sort of point with their entire arm and hand in this particular direction and take the full responsibility for that also and can be also pretty tough in their measures. Here it's a little bit different, certainly lots and lots of measures, most like maybe 75% or so is overlapping with most other countries, but there are some distinct differences. And, and part of that, I mean, 
the government listens very carefully to the public agencies here, and that's a long tradition. And there's a sort of comprehensive, synthesizing, fairly new, actually, public agency to deal with, with disease, public health, and whatever public health agency, actually, is the name of it. But it also deals with more particular virological issues and epidemiological issues. And it has hundreds of employees, I mean, hundreds of experts. The total number of employees is about four or 500 in that agency. And, of course, a few, like in other countries, this main spokesperson's have have been very they are household names now <laughs> but behind them are hundreds of people working behind the scene and the government departments in this country and that's another feature of Sweden that you must know <laughs> if you want to understand what's going on here has very little internal expertise and that's the, the an old arrangement in fact when government ministers intervene in actual operational side of decisions already taken it's called steering and it's actually not something that ministers are expected to do. It's, in fact, they are forbidden to do it. And they can be chased by other parties in parliament and so on if they do. So this kind of uh, divide is, is important. And then I think the obvious outcome of this is that, if, particularly if you have issues where the expertise side of it looms large, then, of course, it would be silly not to listen to the experts. That's why we appointed them in the first place and why we charge them. 400 people to deal with public health issues. Who should have a say on that, if not them? And so it makes the role of government different here from many other countries. The government is almost forced to listen. And in particular, if the government takes a risk by not doing that, because, of course, if things go a little bit bad, they can always say, well, actually, we just took the advice. If they run out into the midfield and shout out, you know, forget about the public health agency, in the government we know how to do things, and we do them like this. <laughs> and consider if it's a disaster happening after that, that government will not survive. It's just out of business. And so, it, in a sense, this kind of soft approach is built into the parameters of the organization of the policy structure. And that's an old thing, going back at least a century even more. I think that has survived so well because there's been a consistent growth in trust in public agencies in Sweden. If you go further back, you find a lot of distrust. <laughs> so it's not been there forever. But in the 20th century, they performed very well. And I think that performance was very much linked to the success of the welfare state. The welfare state was, of course, a political idea, but it was very much resting on the formation of various strands of expertise that took charge of building that welfare state. And people could see that public health, not the least, but also schools and other public institutions were functioning well, and people benefited from this. They became both healthier and wealthier <laughs> at the same time. And so the trust was there. And I think that trust still remains, uh, although it may have been a little bit waning in, in the last couple of decades, but by and large, it's there. So if the government then would have if we imagine that the government would have run out into that midfield and say, you know, we know how to do, do things, I think people would have been just nervous and scared. What then is the proper role for politicians in a crisis like this? I mean, it seems like one of the characteristics of COVID-19 is, is deep uncertainty, not really yeah. knowing the, the, the characteristics of this uh, disease. Of course, the experts <clears throat> know a lot more than you or I as non-scientists, but they don't know everything. And there's a discussion mm. of trade-offs here, right? Mm. The economy versus lives. Mm which is maybe a false mm. choice in some respects, but who makes those decisions if not the politicians? Should mm. should that 
part of it be left to the experts as well, you think? What I was saying was more like giving a description, a presentation of how the, the logic of this, how you can understand it. But that doesn't necessarily say, mean that that's a good idea. And I think you point to something very important here. This, this public health issue differs from many others because it's so comprehensive and the ramifications of the health crisis for aspects of society, particularly the economy, is so immense that it becomes a more complex issue. I think to some extent the public health agency has taken that into account, although they cannot be very explicit about this because they are public health experts, not experts on economy or sociology or whatever. But also I think that's where government in fact has stepped in a little bit. They have been taking decisions, certainly listening to the public health agency, but then actually taken decisions also to counteract on the effects and impacts on the economy. I think there is a particular feature with this virus and the complexity of it, the uncertainties about its... uh, I mean, basically, that the knowledge was so scant that the experts were only, so to speak, (laughs) semi-experts. They didn't know themselves either. Nobody knew. On the other hand, we didn't know or they didn't know how little they knew. So the level of uncertainty has grown with time. So in a certain sense, that first choice was maybe, I couldn't say perhaps unfortunate, but at least it could be questioned. But on the other hand, it was quite understandable at the outset. If it is a public health issue, it was, I think, almost inevitable in a system like ours that the government deferred the authority to the public agency in the first place. I think with time, it's grown more into a sort of a balancing act between the public agency and the government and it's impossible to foresee who takes the right decisions here, actually. I think myself, when I've written about this so far, I've been always very critical about Sweden's lax approach to testing, actually. With our capacities, generally speaking, we should have been able in this country to adopt that apparently successful strategy from certain Asian countries much earlier than we are now doing, actually. But uh, it should have come earlier. We should have invested in that kind of knowledge. It's actually almost unbelievable or hard to understand why why that didn't happen. And I think it, maybe one reason might be that the public health agency had, for some sort of old older professional reasons, that as a default standard that this is something we don't do. I think they should have listened much more. Ironically, when I got the disease myself, <laughs> one of the first things I did was write a letter to the public health agency saying, because I was I was not allowed to be tested when I, I wanted to. And I explained quickly in an email to them how I thought that was actually not a wise thing to not do. <laughs> and also I explained that it was a public health risk and a risk for patients, basically, and for lives not to do it since it was apparently used successfully elsewhere. I think now They have changed their mind. They realize this is necessary. But on the other hand, the full grasp of this kind of situation that actually you need to test more people in elderly care centers or people hired by what we call hemtjänst, was that social service of some kind, social home service, also for elderly people, mostly it was a very, very vulnerable group. I think that sort of dawned upon us, not even in the pioneering Asian countries in this, they didn't fully know that. The full spectrum of the argument, I think, has become something that has sort of dawned upon us. Nobody knew. And I think, again, this is interesting in, in a more general sense, how the very nature of expertise can be discussed here because those that were experts built on knowledge about previous viruses and previous situations, we we could read it easily in the the newspapers. They used the old traditional conventional understanding of viruses (laughs) and applied it to this new virus. And it turns out that this new virus has properties that were not known and were not, that couldn't be derived 
from previous experience. And of course, no expert in the world could foresee that in a sense. And certainly no politician in the world could, I mean, nobody could foresee it. And again, I think that speaks for our understanding of this as a deeper historical and sociological problem. If we are to understand why Sweden does it the way we do, it is because of things we had adopted or particular relationships between expertise and power that were laid down, even in law, much earlier. And again, I think whatever country you go to in, in the entire world, you find certain interesting differences. And they were not invented in January or February or March. They were very probably, and you could see it in terms of France, for example, with a presidential style leadership, of course. It's one person, actually, almost, that, that decides where to go. And the same thing in the United States, Although, of course, you go a new direction every day in the United States, and hence nowhere. <laughs> I mean, Sweden has certainly uh, received a lot of attention internationally, right? It's yeah. become quite the outlier in terms of the response. And as you mentioned, perhaps is not following the lead of other countries in, in Asia, and uh, not even the neighboring countries which we assumed were quite similar to Sweden. Are you surprised by Sweden's resistance to, to following the leads of other countries? Uh, I'm certainly not surprised. I mean, given what I just said, I find it, if not inevitable, so at least quite expected that this was going to happen this way. I think we can see the logic of this. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was the best thing to do. <laughs> and a certain element of, we're still in the midst of this, so we have both a future that's unknown and we have a retrospect that we can reflect upon. And I think retrospectively, I've asked myself that question several point in time here in, over the past couple of months, and I said probably I wouldn't have changed the strategy. If I sort of figured myself as a government, I, I would probably not have changed it, uh, certainly not just because other countries criticize it. I think I would change it, though, if there is overwhelming evidence that you should change it. And I don't think that evidence has been overwhelming. I think we can see a very varied pattern across Europe and certainly the world also, although comparisons globally are difficult for many reasons, but within Europe is perhaps a better comparison. With very different strategies, the immediate results in terms of, for example, spread of the disease and death tolls are very varied too. So a very harsh lockdown kind of strategy has resulted in some countries in very low numbers of casualties and in other countries very high numbers. And so you need to, and vice versa, those who have been a little bit more relaxed have also varied results. So it isn't an easy, causal, simple relationship here. And if, again, I think if you want to understand what's going to happen here and what has happened so far even, you, you will have to go into more fine-grained explanations and they are multifarious. And also, I just saw today that the former head of this public agency in Sweden, certainly an expert also working internationally, he said that his expectation was that at the end of the day, every country would have been hit around the same level, because this is the nature of these kinds of diseases. He's been saying that all along, actually. I think uh, Andre Chagnell as well has been basically saying that almost this fatalistic approach, right? Yeah. yeah. No matter what we do, we're all going to be in the same place, right? Yeah. It's, it's hard to believe, actually, because why would he, they have press conferences every day? They could have just had one press conference and tell them, at the end of the day, we're going to be like everybody else. Call us then, two years ahead. <laughs> I, I, it seems just a little bit too fatalistic. But, but it's probably some... Uh, again, I think the uh, conventional knowledge here is that this is the nature of these diseases. But that remains to be discussed also, because if you look historically at other epidemics, they certainly hit very differently. I mean, look at the Spanish flu, for example. It hit India with 12 million people die. Certainly, the Indian population was then much, much lower than it is today. So 12 million was a very significant number. In Sweden, with a population of 5 million, we had some 50,000 died. 
much smaller proportion. And uh, it's hard to think anything else than actually that was the result of India was an even poor, much poorer country than we were here. But also then, of course, you, you will have to look for particular explanations. Certain harbors were hit hard and so on, certain islands, for example. Uh, and of course, uh, the soldiers in Europe spreading the disease. So there is always a geography to this. And so in that sense, I'd sort of, probably there is a partly true statement that actually everybody will be hit hard anyway. But uh, it would be hard to believe that our measures that we take now and our efforts to combat the disease is totally useless. I don't think so. And also, if you imagine a situation one or two years down the line where if we can get a sort of globally applied vaccination, and at that point in time when the disease hasn't fully worked itself through, then you might have very big differences in, in impacts, and, and they will then be probably conserved at that particular level. And then, of course, his prophecy will turn out totally wrong. <laughs> so, uh, But this is seems to be at least partly uncharted territory. Partly the conventional epidemiological truths would probably be still true, but still there is some particularities happening here which makes prediction very, very hard. As you mentioned before, there are certain, let's say, um, inaccurate stereotypes of Sweden uh, because of these changes that have happened since the 1980s. But still, I mean, up until very recently, uh, the perception of Sweden in the United States and other countries was that Sweden was this socialist, collectivist country. Mm. And now, in the wake of this uh, crisis, the perception has shifted towards a country of individual liberty. Uh, Which one of those is accurate or neither of them accurate? Yeah, I think to to begin with, neither of these images are right or correct. Anywhere near, actually, being correct. It's both stereotypes. But it's a very interesting thing to reflect upon still. And there is a good deal of individualism in in Sweden. I mean, this, this welfare state system that Sweden built in the previous century very successfully, it was certainly not a sort of a full-blown socialism. It, it was very much, a, a, actually, it was basically a capitalist society, but with, with a very strong welfare redistributive system, so that underlying the welfare, of course, was a very effective and functional capitalism. <laughs> Industry that was sort of resting on super good knowledge base, pretty good natural resources, many advantages, actually, and uh, very competitive, very international, very sort of outgoing, very strong emphasis on education, the very sort of untraditionalist approach that actually if you don't get work in your hometown, way in the back areas, just move to the town. We'll support you <laughs> to do that. Just to sort of re- reallocate resources to get full efficiency. And that, of course, drew some criticism, not least from the sort of 60s, 70s, sort of green leftist kind of approach. There was sort of certain questioning of this, but large majority of the population thought it was pretty good. So I think it's important to see then that this was not a collectivist uh, state. It was constantly, always supported by individual voters. So the individual and the individual family had so much advantage of this. And so it was, in a sense, protecting individualism. And you could stay individualist under this welfare system. You were not dependent on others, in a sense. And I think that is another feature of this. We used to have a welfare system way back in the previous centuries where the local community took care of people, very much like has been remaining in other parts of Southern Europe in particular. So the welfare state was very much a, f- a rights-based state. As an individual, you had certain rights. 
not only to free speech and, and everything else, but and political rights, but you also had welfare rights. And these grew and grew. And of course, people were very happy with well, welfare rights growing. And that was for the individual. So the individual's rights were strong. You didn't need to go to any kind of community or priest or some sort of private welfare system, or you didn't go to, to have any soup from soup kitchens in the sidewalks like in other countries. You also didn't just get unemployed very quickly because you were protected by the trade unions, were very, very strong trade unions, and also the sort of collective agreements that they more or less enforced upon employers. And employers actually had a good benefit from that because they had this very mutual uh, solidarity responsible approach both from the worker side and the maybe it's a slightly idyllic description but i think by and large true and it's very important to see that this system was very much focused on protecting the individual and not making the individual dependent and of course that has been also drawing quite a bit of critique because of course people are totally independent they may also be very lonesome <laughs> and basically isolated from the others so community hasn't always been community isn't by far not as important a word here as it is in many other countries, for example, in North America. So community here has been a little bit weakening. We have, we have a, other more formalistic structures, but it's always the individual. And why do I say all this? Because it's important to see that now that we have been in for several decades in a more neoliberal era where much of this welfare state approaches has been sort of, well, I shouldn't say much of it, but it's been rather supplemented by quite a big share of marketized situation Fewer people are members of trade unions. People are less interested in those collective agreements. And many uh, factory owners and uh, employers, they think they can do away with them. So paradoxically, this seems to be pro-individualism, but it's actually weakening the individual. So now, with the crisis, what happens? People are rushing to the uh, the unemployment agency. Same thing with trade union memberships. They're just flocking because they realize, in a sense, that actually these rights were very important. And if you then compare it, maybe a stark comparison, but compared with the United States, where people just can be fired on the day. And here, it's a much more sort of inbuilt security. So I think the image of Sweden, the fact that it's a false image, I think is, in a sense, important for those who want to make claims. And of course, the super claimer is is Trump, and he makes all kinds of claims based on a skewed, well, not just skewed, completely false image of this country. Interestingly, of course, he changes his mind all the time, so he can depict Sweden as a socialist, stupid country one day, and then next actually realizing that that doesn't pay off, because the far right can actually claim that this is the sort of capitalist paradise where they actually choose the economy before human life. <laughs> then, of course, he can move quickly into that camp. One word that I think has been pretty interesting, the way the uh, state epidemiologist understood now says that the Swedish response is more sustainable. This less restrictive response can be done for weeks, for months, maybe for years, whereas these more hard lockdowns in other countries can only be done for a few weeks at a time. What are your thoughts on this temporal dimension of, uh, of this coronavirus crisis? Yeah, well, again, <laughs> we don't know. But I tend to side with him in that. I tended always, actually, from the very first minute to think that it's probably better. I was more intuitive in the beginning, I think, that I th said, yeah, I wouldn't like to be locked up myself. I wouldn't like to have police standing by my own door and say, you know, you, you're not going to get out here, actually. I would rather more listen to advice like or recommendations. I understand also that particularly in, in countries like France and Spain and Italy, where death tolls were rising quickly, what could you do? 
I mean, you didn't need to be a mathematician to, to draw up those curves. That would be a cost that would be so enormous in terms of human life that you just had to do something very decisive. But whereas in Sweden, we had a very soft start of that curve. And despite whatever I said here about uh, the relationship between public agency and power and so on, that if we'd had a very steep curve in the beginning, I suppose it would be inevitable for the government to say, you know, public health agency or not, we, we must do something here. We cannot accept this. And there is a one more longer, even longer term perspective that one can reflect upon now and I think becomes very, now very quickly rises on the political agenda. And that is, what are we actually going to do after this crisis or when the crisis is sort of waning down so we can actually see clearly and move forward? And there, I think it's, it's a very interesting political moment in the sense that this is it's an almost revolutionary moment in the sense that the, the, the options here are either to actually revert to the same, <laughs> try to sort of reinstall, keep keep all the companies that were up there, all the airplanes in the air, all the cars in the in the roads, keep everything, even start new sort of coal plants again to just have exactly the society we had 1st of January to replace it so that by 1st January next year we have the same situation again. And of course GDP on the same level, everything will be the same. But many people now I think experience this crisis as although very tragic and, and horrifying in many ways, they're actually opening up a, an opportunity to actually Maybe saying, oh, it wasn't the best of worlds then, <laughs> actually. There's a better world, actually, that we can use this this moment to. Because also, governments open the purse. You can do things now, almost like in the 30s, when the, the super high unemployment levels, it was Keynesian politics. You actually, actually we, we, we won't, won't get out of here unless we invest. That's, that's actually, to take on some more debt collectively and solve the problems now. And how do you do that when you sort of inject enormous amounts of money in the economy, then you have a choice, actually. Of course, taking up the old plants with their roots is always very hard, but if plant new things, is easier. You can build high-speed railways, you can invest in welfare systems, you can invest in, particularly in hospitals, you can invest in, in better preparedness for coming crises. You, you, ha- you can have sort of a super new green deal, which covers not just Europe, but the entire world. There's going to be a total mind change uh, that And I think some people are thinking along these lines now. And with this hitting us, having us change in the immediate everyday life, and as I said, taking on this solidarity burden of being locked up or whatever we are, at least changing, there is a sense of empowerment, I think. Uh, in the midst of despair, there is also empowerment. We think we can do things. And uh, I think that is spreading. And I, I sort of collected voices for it sometimes. Even people who would need to be very careful with what they say, like Angela Merkel, Franz Timmermans, Antonio Guterres, representing big countries, even conservative politicians, even very liberal politicians, would usually not say things like that. They would say, you know, actually, I'm... I'm actually for a revolution. <laughs> Maybe they don't use that word, but they, they speak as if they sort of drastic changes would be actually the way, right thing to do. And why not? Because we have been uh, stuck for such a long time in, in, for example, in the climate crisis, in in patterns of incremental change. And the incremental change, changing incentive systems, is painstakingly slow compared to the equally, I mean, it's hard to even keep pace with the bad things happening every day just because people can do it. They get away with it. You can build a new coal plant. You can drive your old car every day. You can fly every day. It's just not forbidden. You can just do it and do it. And there's so many good reasons to do it that putting in new incentive systems to offset the negative impacts of that is just the equation doesn't hold. And that was a neoliberal equation. I respect the uh, ambition, the sort of the smartness of having things, having both ways at the same time. But I think the experience here is that we have reached a point where we realize this 
not going to take us anywhere, or at least not quickly enough. So in, in a certain sense, this seems like an act of God. <laughs> you actually intervene to save humanity <laughs> by sort of opening our eyes to the impossibilities of the previous ways of doing things. Well, Professor Stark, it's really a fascinating discussion, and thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you.